of Ephesians chapter number 5, and beginning with verse number 18. Amen. Ephesians chapter 5, and uh, verse number 18. We're going to, uh, the Lord willing, finish chapter 5 of Ephesians by way of Bible study tonight. And um, we, uh, last week, focused on the first the first half about walking in love and walking in purity. And uh, the second half of chapter 5 of Ephesians shifts a little bit and begins to talk about how in a, in a believer's life there are some practical things that happen and they begin to show up in the home. They begin to show up in, in marriages. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about that uh, this evening. But uh, beginning with uh, the first verse, first passage, of course, a little theme for tonight's passage is heaven in your home. In uh, verse number 18, uh, verse number 18 says, And be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Everybody say filled with the Spirit. The Apostle Paul is instructing church in Ephesus and greater church that we shouldn't be drunk with wine uh, but we should be filled with the Holy Spirit now we will look as we study in chapter 5 that God's plan is that the home would be ruled by God's word and if a home is ruled by God's word then in the home it will be a little taste of heaven this is God's plan in a Christian home that within the framework of this uh, Christian family, that it's a little taste of heaven, a little sampling, a little portion of heaven. And if angels come into a Christian home, they should feel at home there because it should be a little bit of heaven. And a lot of us have to work in a hellish atmosphere, pardon the term. A lot of people have to uh, uh, experience things that uh, are... Uh, extremely um, offensive and discouraging. But then when we come to a spirit-filled home, it should be a haven. Amen? But the trouble is that many homes are not governed by the Word of God. Even homes that are supposed to be the members of the home are professed Christians, and the consequences of this are tragic. There's too many marriages that end in the divorce court, even Christian marriages. In fact, uh, studies have shown that a Christian marriage doesn't have any better chance to survive than a non-Christian marriage based on statistics. And that's not the way it should be. And many husbands and wives are emotionally divorced even though they share the same address. Home should be a little taste of heaven on the earth. But the only answer for this, the only hope is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the only thing that can make the difference. Amen. Praise the Lord. We want heaven in our homes. Let's ask God for it right now. Jesus, I pray, Lord God, that you would bless Life Church at its fundamental unit, which is the family, Lord God. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would strengthen and fortify and edify every marriage, Lord Jesus, that's represented in this assembly, Lord Jesus, and every single family, Lord God. Hallelujah, that you would bless it, Lord, and strengthen Jesus as we seek to serve you, Lord God. Hallelujah. As we seek to honor you and be submitted to you, in the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Praise the Lord. Everybody said amen. Hallelujah. And you may be seated. 
Praise the Lord. Only through the Holy Spirit, only through being filled with the Holy Spirit, can God's plan be accomplished in our families and in our homes. Only through the Holy Spirit can we walk in harmony as husbands and wives, which is what we're going to partially look at uh, tonight. And then uh, next week in chapter 6, it talks about harmony between parents and children, the first four verses. And then the next four verses are five verses, harmony between employers and employees. And uh, the unity of the people of God that the Apostle Paul described in chapter 4 as we look, all of this can be translated into daily living. All of this can be translated into how I live day by day. Being filled with the Spirit is God's command, and He expects us to obey it. He says, be filled with the Spirit. The command is not singular, but it's plural, so it means all of us are to be filled with the Spirit. There's some people that think, well, the baptism and the filling of the uh, Holy Ghost is only for a select few people. But the command here is for us to be filled with the Spirit. And, and the word here, be filled with the Spirit, the verb is, is a present tense verb. So if you were to translate it literally, what it's actually saying is to keep on being filled with the Spirit. Be not drunk with wine where is excess, but keep on being filled with the Spirit. Amen? It's not about a one-time experience. It's not about something that happened five years ago or five months ago or 20 years ago. It's about something that God is expecting for us to keep on being filled constantly, not just on special occasions, but keep on being filled with the Spirit. The word filled here does not mean necessarily like a container being half empty or half full, but what the word filled here actually means is to be controlled by, being filled with the Spirit. For instance, uh, in the book of Luke, those that opposed Jesus and were seeking to kill him, the Bible says they were filled with wrath which means they were controlled by their anger. And, uh, and then uh, uh, in Acts chapter 13, verse 45, the Jews that were opposing the Christians says they were filled with envy. It doesn't mean it's just like a container. It means they were controlled by envy, controlled by wrath. And here the Bible is saying be filled or controlled by the Spirit. We know that there is a sense of, of, of we've got to be full up, amen, not just partially uh, contain, container of the Spirit. But also, once we reach that full point, we will be controlled by the Spirit. And how many know there's a difference, amen, of being controlled or not being controlled by the Spirit of God? I can say, I got the Holy Ghost down in my soul, but my life's not controlled by the Spirit. Amen. That's what the Bible says when it says, be filled with the Spirit. So to be filled with the Spirit means to be constantly controlled by the Spirit in our minds, in our emotions, in our will. Our mind, will, and emotions, which is our soul. And it's the real person. My mind, my will, what I want, my emotions, which makes me happy and sad. I want all of this to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. This is the will of God. This is the plan of God for my life. I promise you my life will be a lot better, and yours will too, if you're filled with the Spirit. If you're controlled constantly, by the Holy Spirit in our mind and our will and our emotions. Amen? When, when the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, that we celebrate and preach about and talk about in Acts chapter 2, the Bible says they were filled with the Spirit. And, the, and, and uh, 
it was this filling of the Spirit that gave them the power that they needed to be witnesses. And ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you. Amen? And so the idea of being filled with the Spirit is not just a one-time baptism of the Holy Spirit. I'm so glad that... Um, how many years ago has it been now? It's been almost 30 years ago. I was baptized in the Holy Spirit. And the Bible promised that I would be baptized in the Holy Spirit. For some of you, it's been a few months. Some, it's been a few years. Some, it's been many years since you were baptized in the Holy Spirit. Amen? But the Bible tells us to be filled, which is constantly controlled, constantly allowing the Spirit. Amen? This happens through encounters with God in prayer. This happens through the Word of God. Everybody said amen if you believe it. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. And, of course, we think, obviously, the power of the Spirit, being filled with the Spirit, is necessary if you're going to be a preacher or if you're going to be an effective witness. Of course, this is true. And uh, in the book of Acts, there are several instances where it said the apostles experienced repeated feelings of the Holy Spirit after that initial experience at, at Pentecost. They were filled with the Spirit. They were filled with the Spirit. They were filled with the Spirit. Uh, Acts 4 and 8, Acts 4.31, Acts 6.3, Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 7, verse 55. Acts chapter 13, verse 9. All of these are instances where the apostles experienced filling. They were filled with the Holy Ghost, even though they already experienced initial baptism of God's Spirit. And so we do agree that in order to be a witness of God, or in order to preach the gospel, we've got to be filled or controlled by the Spirit. But Paul is writing here in this passage, and we'll see that he's not just talking about preaching or witnessing, but he is saying that the Spirit's fullness in us is also necessary in our home. It's also needed in the home. And so the question is, are my actions, is our home filled with God's And I've got an answer for you. You can find out how, according to this passage of Scripture, you can see, you can tell whether or not you're filled with the Spirit. I'm not talking about baptized with the Spirit. We know what the evidence of the initial baptism is. It's the initial evidence. Speak in tongues as the Spirit gave the utterance. But there's evidence that someone's filled with the Spirit. That's right. Not baptized. What's the evidence that a believer is filled with the Spirit? According to this passage, there are three evidences that someone's filled with the Spirit. Three evidence of the fullness of the Spirit in the life of a believer is... Verse 19, he is joyful. Verse 20, he is thankful. And verses 21 through 33, he is submissive. Submissive. This is evident sign of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. If a believer and does not have the joy of the Lord, then they are not being controlled by the Spirit of God. Huh? If a person is does not have a, a sense of gratitude instead of feeling cheated, slighted, or kind of entitled attitude, then they're not being they're not filled with the spirit or controlled by the spirit. And if a person rejects and casts off authority in their life and they will not submit to authority, then they're not being controlled by the spirit because being controlled by the spirit will make you joyful, thankful, and submissive. Amen. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. We're going to go ahead and get into our reading here. Verse number 19. First evidence of being filled with the Spirit is that a person will be joyful. 
19 says, Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. It says, Be not drunk with wine where is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. And, of course, we all understand that the Bible says it gives us the list of the fruit of the Spirit, and joy is one of the fruit of the Spirit. And Christian joy is not just a shallow emotion that's like a thermometer. What, what's a thermometer? A thermometer is something that goes up and down based on, right, based on setting, environment goes up and down. And so Christian joy is not like a thermometer that gets high when things are good. It gets low when things are bad. And uh, Christian joy in, in a Christian home does not rise and fall with the changing atmosphere of the home, but rather Christian joy is a deep experience of confidence and completeness in spite of the circumstances around us. Amen. So a Christian that is filled with the Spirit can be joyful even in the midst of pain and suffering. Amen? This kind of joy is not a thermometer, but a thermostat. Right? Difference in a thermostat and a thermometer. Thermometer goes up and down. Thermostat does not go up and down. It's steady, and it affects the environment. It determines the environment. And the same is too in a, in a Christian. When we are filled with the Spirit, when we are filled with the Spirit, there is something in the life of a true believer that is controlled by the Spirit, that's plugged into God, that's talking to Him and, and in touch with the Lord, that you don't go up and down with the atmosphere of the home, but you help set. Amen? You help set the temperature, set the tone. Amen? And... Uh, to illustrate the joy here that, that's in the life of the believer, Paul uses the image of drunkenness in verse 18. Drunkenness, be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Of course, when the new believers at Pentecost were filled with the Holy Spirit, the crowd said, they're drunk. They're, they've, they've been drinking. They're drunk on new wine. Uh, and there was such a joyfulness about them that unbelievers could think of no better way to describe it guys are I wonder if people still think the thing about us when we come out of they come into our service and they see it do they think we're drunk there a lot of joy glee is there a lot of problems being left behind struggles and issues forgotten temporarily in the presence of the Lord amen and uh, the picture of drunkenness can be transferred to a believer who is filled with the Spirit. Instead of alcohol controlling their life, it's God that controls their life. Amen? And he experiences a deep joy and is not afraid to express the glory of God. What happens when somebody gets drunk? They're not inhibited anymore. Well, I think this. I believe this. And everybody's like, you hadn't said a word. Been with you 20 years, but you get a little alcohol in your system. You express yourself. 
Someone who is filled with the Spirit of God is not afraid to express the glory of God. Amen? We know a drunk person's out of control since alcohol affects his brain, but the believer is in control. Amen? Self-control, that really means God is in control. Hallelujah. Amen? It's not difficult to live or work with someone who is filled with the Spirit and joyful. He has a song in his heart. He or she has a song on their lips. Amen? I want to be filled with the Spirit of God. Hallelujah. Psalms 42 and 8, it talks about songs in the night, that God would give us songs in the night. And Paul and Silas illustrated this at midnight when in spite of pain and shame, they were able to sing praises to God in that Philippian jail in Acts chapter 16. And the result was there was jailhouse rock and there was a conversion of the jailer and his family. That's the kind of joy that we're talking about that's there in the midst of trial and there in the midst of, of, of good things. Amen? Hallelujah. It's the joy of the Lord. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. People who drink together often experience, you know, this communal feeling of sympathy. Somebody starts telling their story and the drunk there is just crying into his beer with them there. And, and they, they can become festive, have, have a good time and friendship and fellowship together. And, of course, this is no argument for alcohol. Alcohol is the most destructive thing on the planet as far as a, uh, a natural element. But it does illustrate a point, and that is that Christians who are filled with the Spirit instead of drunken with wine, Christians who are filled with the Spirit enjoy being together, and they experience a sense of joyful oneness in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? You don't have to get that by getting drunk. You don't have to get a bunch of drinking buddies that you can cry on each other's shoulder and laugh together. But if you're filled with the Spirit, amen, when when our church is on fire for God and filled with the Spirit, we love to be together and we feel one in the Lord. Amen? So one evidence of the joy of the fullness of the Spirit is that you're joyful. Second evidence is in verse number 20. Verse 20 says giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus. Giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? God, even the Father, even our Lord Jesus Christ. The word Kai is used there. But being thankful to God for each other is the secret of a happy home. I'll just say that again. Being thankful to God for each other is a secret of a happy home. And it's the Holy Spirit in us, controlling us, that gives us the grace of thankfulness. Amen? Hallelujah. Someone that has a grateful heart can promote harmony in in the home. You say, how is that? A sincerely grateful person realizes that his life is better, her life is better, because of the others around them. And this is a mark of humility. Amen? I read the story last week, biography of a Christian entertainer who fell from grace, and I was amazed um, as uh, the author's biography told the condition of his mind and his heart while he was making a lot of money and singing songs that were blessing lots of people. And uh, 
how selfish and self-centered he was, focused on himself and not grateful at all for his family. And uh, um, But somebody who recognizes how much they are blessed by another person, that's a mark of humility. When we recognize that person is a blessing, that person makes my life better. You ever saw, sat down and, th- and thought about it before? My wife and I talked about this just a few weeks ago. Sometimes uh, you, know, you go through a little storm in life, you go through a little rough time, and you say, you know what? My family matters so much to me, and I love my wife, and I love my kids, and they bring so much joy to me. They really enrich my life. But a person who's an egomaniac doesn't think that way, right? The person who thinks the world owes him a living and is never thankful for anything. Somebody with an entitled mindset who thinks that he's doing others a favor by permitting them to serve him. Amen? That's not a thankful heart, but a grateful heart is always thankful and is usually very humble. Amen? Kind of a link together. And I'm grateful. I'm grateful rather than, why haven't you done this? What have you done for me lately, baby? Amen? But thank you. I'm thankful. And, uh, like Mary's gift, she broke the alabaster box on the feet of Jesus in John chapter 12. Thanksgiving, gratitude, as a way of filling up the room, just like that essence of that fragrance filled the room that they were sitting in. It has a tendency to create an environment and an atmosphere in the home. Amen? Just like joy, joyfulness creates an atmosphere in the home. The joy of the Lord, so does a spirit that's thankful, a heart that's grateful, amen? We could all find things wrong, can't we? We can all find things to criticize our spouse about or our children about. But what we ought to do is just remember, thank God for how much this person improves and blesses my life, amen? Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. And Paul is commanding readers to be thankful for all things, always, that means nonstop gratitude. How does that happen? You've got to have the Holy Spirit to be thankful in all things. Amen? We're supposed to be thankful always in all things. We need the help of God's Spirit for that to happen. Because in our own strength, we could never obey this. Thank all things. It's not going to work without the Holy Ghost. Amen? Can we really be thankful in times of suffering? disappointment and bereavement and sadness and loss. Amen. Remember when Paul's writing this letter, where's he at? He's in prison. I mean like long-term in prison. I mean like every day having to eat gruel. I mean like every day having to deal with rodents, insects, and filth. Every day being deprived of his liberty. And he's saying right here, Psalms, spiritual songs, singing, make melody. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't be drunk with wine. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Give thanks always for all things unto God in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul was a prisoner, yet he was thankful for what God was doing in him and for him. He kept the things in context. Amen? So when we as Christians find ourselves in difficult situations, we should immediately give thanks. Amen? to keep our hearts from complaining and fretting. It's like an anecdote. You know what an anecdote is? 
have something that can be hurtful. You have to take the anecdote that combats it. And worrying and fretting and complaining will destroy a Christian. So when you come into a difficult situation, feel that coming on. What do you need to do? Everything give thanks. Find a way to give praise to the Lord. Find a way to give Him glory. Because all of us have situations in life where we can find stuff to complain about. And don't you, don't you agree with me? All of us go through things that don't seem fair at times. All of us go through rough situations. But as Christians, if we surrender to complaining and fretting, the devil has a chance to move in. Amen? Let me just say it this way. The devil packs up his U-Haul and moves into our lives when a Christian starts to complain. Amen? But thanksgiving in the Spirit defeats the devil and gives glory to God. Amen? Fretting, complaining, fault-finding, whining makes place for the devil. But when we give thanks always to God, when we give glory to Him, this is why daily prayer is so important. We talked about uh, earlier in the year about Acts, which you could start your prayer with adoration and then confession and then thanksgiving and then supplication because thanksgiving, amen, is what keeps us in the right frame of mind and keeps the devil from moving in and having control, amen? Praise the Lord. And then finally, verse number 21, amen, this is where it gets tough. You know what? This is not easy, amen? Somebody says, oh, living for God's easy. It's impossible without the Holy Spirit. You just take a, a random person that's not living for God, an unbeliever, and say, okay, here's all you got to do. I want you, number one, to be joyful, to have joy at all times, whatever you're going through. Number two, I want you to be thankful. No matter what you're going through, I want you to be grateful. And number three, I want you to submit yourself. They're going to be like, verse 21, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. I'm telling you, this is a work of the Spirit that happens that enables us to do this. Now, Paul applies the, the principle of harmony together, working together and, and uh, uh, being submitted to one another. First of all, he applies it to husbands and wives. But then in chapter 6, he applies it to, to parents and children and then employees and employers or servants and masters. But uh, in our day, it would be employees and employers. And uh, um, he says here, submit yourselves one to another. And you're like, what does this mean? I, I remember thinking about it. Does this mean everybody submits to everybody? Obviously, this is not suggesting that children tell their parents what to do or or that masters have to obey their servants, that the employer has to obey the employee. That's not what it's talking about. Submission has nothing to do with the order of authority, but submission governs the operation of authority. When you submit, you are uh, um, submitting to the operation of authority. That is how it is given and how it is received. Amen? Now, biblical submission, here's the deal. Submission gets a bad rap because uh, it's got a negative connotation in our world today. But when the Bible talks about submission, here's one important thing. 
Biblical submission is always voluntary. And I say that again. Biblical submission is always voluntary. It's never forced. It's forced. It's not biblical submission. Amen? But biblical submission is always voluntary. And we think of submission as one person lording over another person, and the other person is submitted to the person who has the authority. But uh, if you look at the the word submit, the, the first definition of the word submit means to yield, to resign, or to surrender to the power, the authority, or the will of another, or commit to the judgment of another. But I like this. The word submit comes from two root words in the, in the English language, sub and mit, or sub and then mission. Sub, mit. Y'all still with me? Okay, what does sub mean? Sub means under, beneath, or below. Or it can mean lower in rank or position or to a lesser degree. Sub, under. Well, what does mit mean? Mit means to send. Or mission, submission. Mission means being sent out with authority to perform a special duty as a messenger or a representative. I'm sending you on a mission. Another term for mission is a task or purpose that a person is destined to perform, like a calling. So submit means being under authority with a mission. Submission, being under authority with authority and a mission. That's why one of the most fascinating things that I've, I've, I've noticed in Scripture, I heard somebody talk about it, and I, I studied it myself, is the, uh, uh, the centurion that came to Jesus who needed a miracle for his servant. And uh, he came to Jesus and, and asked the Lord, will you, will you take care of this? I know you've got the power. Jesus said, I'll come to your house and do it for you. And the guy stops him and says, it's not necessary. I know you got things to do. Speak the word only, and my servant shall be made whole. And, and then listen carefully to what he said next. This is exactly what he said. He said, for I am a man under authority, saying to this one go, to this one come, and he goes, become. He didn't say, I am a man with authority, saying to him, go to come. But I'm a man under authority, saying to him, go and to him come. So the point was this centurion understood something. He understood that his ability to command his authority was because he was under authority. It was submission, amen, that was his key to having authority. And the key is in the kingdom of God, I can only do what God has called me to do with his authority and his blessing if I am submitted, amen? If I'm submitted to the Lord, if I'm not, then I don't have any right. Amen. I don't have any authority to go out and accomplish his will. Let's look real quickly here at some verses that reinforce the concept of spiritual authority and submission. Romans 13, 1. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. The authority that's in place is ordained of God. 
Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. Everybody say, ouch. That's some powerful language there regarding submission. Because when you resist the power, it's called, we call it rebellion. Rebelling against authority. And rebelling against authority causes a person to receive damnation. Let's look at a couple other verses here. This is also the Apostle Paul. It says, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities. Understand, this is not just talking about in the church. This is talking about submitting to civil authorities. Amen? To authority at school, to authority at the workplace. As a Christian, we are to be submissive. Submissive does not mean weak. Submissive means understanding authority. Come on now. Submissive does not mean weak. Submissive means understanding order and authority. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good. In Titus 3.1. Then Hebrews 13.17. Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden. For that would be of no advantage to you. So these are some of the verses of Scripture that uh, indicate that as a Christian, as a spirit-filled Christian, we are not only joyful and thankful, but we also are submitted to authority. We recognize and submit to authority and say, I want that in my life. And there's not there, there's a blessing to it that many, many people miss. The blessing of submission. Everybody understands that rebellion or refusing to recognize God's position and submitting to God was the cause of Satan's fall, right? That's the only thing. He didn't go out and and uh, get somebody pregnant or something like that. What did Satan do? Satan rebelled against God's call and, God, and, and God's authority. So to offend God's authority is a rebellion far more serious than that of offending God's holiness. Like, what do you mean? This is about conduct. Holiness is about conduct. But offending God's authority is is a principle. And so a, a, a sin of conduct is a lot more easily dealt with than a sin of uh, rejecting authority because what you're doing is you're agreeing with Satan when you cast off authority. This is a deep, deep subject. We could spend a whole lesson on this, but I just want to mention this. The Bible says, submit yourselves one to another. Understand authority, recognize it, recognize your position, and submit. Amen? That means you are under authority. All of us in this room are under authority in a, in a secular sense, but also in a spiritual sense. Recognize that. Submit to it because it will be for your betterment. Amen? Since it is a matter of conduct, sinning is more easily forgiven than rebellion because rebellion is a matter of principle. It's a matter of principle. And, I, and that's one thing that, um, that I, you know, I've recognized as a, as a child growing up is that somebody that has problems with authority is a lot more uh, unlikely to experience God's purpose in their life than someone who has a problem with say, lust or struggles with this or struggles with that. Because these matters of conduct 
through the power of the Holy Spirit can be dealt with, but it's a principle of the mind that makes it difficult. Amen. And so it's very important for us to understand that the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit in us, causes us to submit to spiritual authority. That's why everybody needs a pastor, including me. I need a pastor. We need a pastor. Amen? And you say, okay, I understand your position as a spiritual leader in my life, and I submit to that authority, and I want you to help me. Amen? And God can begin to bless. But not only this, but there is a benefit to submission. Let's look at this real quick. The Bible says in Psalms 133, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Everybody say unity. Unity. Because unity, dwelling together in unity, is like precious ointment. What happens when there's unity? It's like precious ointment. That ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, that went down to the skirts of his garment, as the dew of Hermon and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion. It says, when brethren dwell together in unity, it is like the anointing that flowed down the beard, down to the skirts of the garment. You're like, what does this mean? Let's look at this. First of all, anointing always flows down and not up. Anointing always flows down. Anointing flows down. It comes from the head to the shoulders to the body to the feet. It comes down. And secondly, the anointing comes when we are under a head, when we are under authority. And we understand that Jesus Christ is the head of the church, right? And then in the church, in the body of Christ, God puts spiritual authority in place. Amen? And so every person needs to have a a person that they are submitted to that's a spiritual authority in their life, that they say, I want you to come to me if there's something that you recognize that I need to do, and I will submit. Amen? Amen? Understand, we said in Christianity, uh, Biblical submission is always voluntary. It's not anything that can be forced. It's voluntary. But God blesses it. But not only is there anointing, but I've seen, and and I'm, I'm compressing the lesson down as much as I can, I've seen that there's also a spiritual inheritance that a person receives when they submit to authority. I look at all the great men of God within our movement that have been used in powerful ways, and I see men who knew how to come under spiritual authority. And many of them are submitted to spiritual authority in their life, may not have as powerful or gifted a ministry as them. Amen? May not be as prominent or well-known as them, but that's their pastor. Amen? That's their spiritual authority. Exodus 29 and 29 says, The holy garments of Aaron shall be his sons after him to be anointed therein, and to be consecrated in them. The Bible lets us know, uh, the Apostle Paul says, you 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 may have a lot of instructors in Christ, but you don't have a lot of fathers. You may have a lot of teachers, but you don't have a lot of spiritual fathers. And he says, because I have begotten you through the gospel. You've been born through the gospel. So the Apostle Paul was saying to these people, hey, check it out. I'm your spiritual father. I'm not just another teacher. 
I'm your spiritual father. That's what the Apostle Paul was saying to these people. And because of that, there was an inheritance that was available to them. And the story here is that uh, Aaron, which was the priesthood, that Aaron was anointed in a certain coat. And then years later when his son, and then years after that when his grandson were to be anointed for their calling, they put on the same coat and were anointed in the coat of their father or their grandfather that their great-grandfather had been anointed in. And so there was a passing down of anointing. And there was a fresh anointing that was given to them, but lingering in the fibers of the garment, uh, amen, lingering in the fibers of the garment was a residue of generational anointing that came because they were under headship, because they were under authority. And someone who does not have spiritual authority in their life has no inheritance and there's no flow of anointing, amen? So God's anointing flows down to those who understand Submission. Amen. That's a, a lesson. I'm going to have to break that down and teach the whole thing for you uh, uh, sometime because it's really powerful. Amen. Back to uh, heaven in the home. Jesus was teaching his disciples to submit to one another, not to seek to become great, but to humble themselves. He, he told us to, to, to esteem others more important than ourselves. And human beings, we want to promote ourselves, kind of put ourselves up there just like the uh, apostles did remember they're like hey i'll sit on your right hand and and my brother can sit on your left hand and, and jesus like you guys are missing the point and he got down and began to wash their feet because he was illustrating the point that those of you that would be greatest would be a servant to all amen as we study paul's words to husbands and wives here in the next few verses this is very important so listen right now you don't have to listen the rest of the time listen right now Remember, he was writing to believers. And nowhere does Paul ever suggest in this passage that women are inferior to men. Or that women must be in subjection to men in every situation. The fact that he, he uses Christ and his church as the illustration here in the next few verses is evident that he has the Christian home in mind. He is not saying women should be submitted to men, but he's talking about the Christian home. Let's look at the verse here. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. The Lord gives this commandment, the Apostle Paul gives this commandment for two reasons. First of all, he talks about the Lordship of Christ in verse 22, as unto the Lord, and the headship of the man in Christ. The head for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is is the head of the church. So when a Christian wife submits herself to Christ and lets him be the Lord of her life, she will have no difficulty also submitting to her husband. This does not mean that she becomes a slave. But he said, Amen. Because the husband is also to be submitted to Christ. And if both husband and wife are living under the lordship of the Lord, 
there can only be harmony. Amen? Headship is not talking about dictatorship. Amen? But it's talking about order of authority. It's talking about a line of authority. The Christian husband and wife should pray together and spend time in the Word of God so that they might know God's will for their lives and for their home. Amen? Amen? And all of this right here gives us further example. And I know the young people are downstairs. Most of you are beyond this point. Uh, but but it, it bears repeating is that a Christian should marry a Christian. Amen? And not become unequally yoked together with an unbeliever. A home like that invites civil war from the very beginning. Amen? And a Christian couple must be careful. Maybe I need to go downstairs and teach this. Careful to submit to the lordship of Christ even before they are married. And uh, if they don't pray together and seek God's will, their marriage can be built on a weak foundation. Amen? Praise the Lord. Next verse. Verse number 25. Husbands, love your wives. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Now I want you to notice that from verse 25 to verse 33, he spends all of that time talking about how the husbands are to treat their wives. Just a few verses referencing submission, but then a greater bulk of verses relating to how the husband is to love their wives. He set a very high standard, if you think about it. Love your life, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. He is saying, in essence, love your wives as much as Christ loved the church. Love your wives with the same type of sacrifice and commitment that the Lord loved the church. Amen? Paul was lifting married love to the highest level possible because he saw in the Christian home an illustration or a picture of the relationship between Jesus Christ and his church. Amen? God established marriage for many reasons. Number one is to meet emotional needs of a man. In Genesis 2.18, it's not good that a man should be alone. Also, there's a physical purpose to marriage. That is the, uh, or social purpose, which is procreation. There's also a physical purpose to uh, uh, take care of the natural desires that human beings have, normal desires that were given by God. But we're talking here about the spiritual purpose in marriage. Amen? And uh, as the husband and wife experience this spiritual purpose as they submit to one another and and to the love of Christ. Praise God. Amen. Now, as a man, if I make the Lord's love for the church my model or pattern for loving my wife, then I love her sacrificially. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. It will be a sacrificial love. The Lord gave himself for the church, so the husband in love gives himself for his wife. And, uh, you know, in the the Bible, the story of Jacob, who gave 14 years to win his beloved Rachel. 
The same is true. True Christian love is not selfish. It's not selfish, but it's very sacrificing. But not only is it a sacrificial love, but a husband's love is to be a sanctifying love or a cleansing or purifying love. Verse 26, that he may sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Now, understand we've got this parallel here. Christ in the church, husband and wife. Christ in the church, husband and wife. Christ loves the church sacrificially so that he can sanctify and cleanse and purify it. The husband loves the wife sacrificially with all of his heart. And if he's filled with the Spirit, it's also a cleansing love. Amen. It's a love that sanctifies. The word sanctify means set apart. And in the marriage ceremony, the husband is set apart to belong only to the wife, and the wife is set apart to belong only to the husband and forsaking one another. Amen. That's part of the vows, forsaking one another. And any interference with this arrangement is called sin. Praise the Lord. And so the love that's in marriage is not to be just for the man's pleasure, but to show the kind of love that is mutually rewarding and sanctifying. Because true love, Christian love, builds, enlarges, and enriches while selfishness tears down and destroys. Amen? So it's a positive love. Amen. Hallelujah. The husband's wife should be sacrificial and sanctifying, but it also should be, uh, verse 28 through 30, satisfying love. So ought men to love their wives as their own body. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh. Hadn't happened yet. But nourisheth and cherisheth it even as the Lord does to the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. Amen. So Christ's relationship to the church, just like the ideal Christian husband's relationship, loving her as he loves his body. Amen. I can tell by looking around, you guys take care of your bodies. You nourish it. Whenever it says, give me, say, how much? Does nobody yet, nobody yet hated their own flesh, didn't take care. Nourish it, cherish it. And so the way that Christ feels for the church is, this is part of my body. I want to take care of it. I want to minister to it. I want to strengthen it. I want to bless it because if it hurts, I hurt. And the same is true in a Christian relationship, a marriage relationship. This is part of my body. Amen. And so I'm going to love it and I'm going to cherish it. And it's going to be a satisfying love. The marriage relationship Husband and wife become one flesh. So whatever one does to another, he is doing to himself or herself. So it is a mutually satisfying experience. Amen? Hallelujah. As we take care of our flesh, so husbands, we've got to love our wives that way. And uh, love is the circulatory system of the body of Christ. It's not blood, but it's love. And love is also the nourishment in 
the home. There should never be starvation for love in the Christian home. Amen. The husband and wife should so love each other that their needs are met. Their physical, emotional, and spiritual needs are met. And if both are submitted to the Lord and to each other, they will be satisfied and then they will not be tempted to look elsewhere for fulfillment. Amen. Our Christian homes ultimately are to be pictures of the Lord's relationship to the church. Let's read the rest of the passage here. Verse 31. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church, oneness. One. Christ and the church are one. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence or respect her husband. Love. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect your husband. And this is a, a, a book that uh, I, I have in my office. Somebody uh, said that it's called Love and Respect. What every, what every woman needs, what every man desires, I think the term. It's right from the Bible here. Man, love a wife even as yourself. And a wife, reverence and respect the husband amen and they, they that's what every man needs is respect and what every true love amen and true love is respectful as well praise the lord hallelujah amen we're one with christ the church is one body and the bride of christ and the christian home is an illustration of this relationship between christ and the church this makes marriage a serious matter amen Marriage is not something to mess with, play around with, or try out for a while. Right? Amen. Marriage is something to get into after much prayer, after seeking the will of God, and then commit to it as Christ was committed to the church. How many are glad that the Lord Jesus is not like one of these modern men that get into a relationship as long as it pleases him and then moves on to the next one. Amen. But the Lord's love to the church, amen, is an illustration of a Christian love. Amen. The root of most marital problems is sin and the root of all sin is selfishness, self-centeredness. Amen. So submission to Christ and to each other, being thankful, being joyful is the only way to overcome selfishness because when we submit, then the Holy Spirit can fill us and enable us to love one another in the way that the Lord Jesus Christ loved the church. Praise God. Let's stand together. Amen. Hallelujah. How many are glad you've been born of the Spirit? You receive the Holy Spirit because without the Holy Ghost... Without the Holy Ghost, all this that we're talking about here tonight is pie in the sky. And we've, we can experience the fullness of the Spirit because we've been born of the Spirit. We have been born again. And we need to ask God to be filled with the Spirit. Amen? And the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to work in us. And when we're filled with the Word of God, filled with the Spirit, it produces this joy and thanksgiving and submission.
that we talked about tonight. And so as Christians, we need to spend time daily letting the Word of God dwell in us. Amen?